you see that the preaching of God's Word is found in Luke chapter 16, verses 27 through 31. Luke 16, verses 27 through 31. These are the words of the rich man as he suffered in agony, as we considered last week, as he speaks to Abraham in heaven above. Notice his desire, as well as Abraham's response. So here's Luke 16, 27 through 31. Speaking of the rich man, we read as follows. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So it is then the Word of God. We have here the last portion of this instruction Christ provides regarding Lazarus as he's introduced, this beggar, and the rich man who remains nameless before us, but a covenant member of God's people who had rejected the truth of that covenant. And so both of them die. And though one was in this world highly exalted, likely above whatever you or I could attain in this world, by riches and comforts and satisfaction, he was brought low, as we considered, to torments. And it's then that the whole world is seen for what it is. And on the other side, Lazarus, this poor beggar man, who had no friend but the dogs of the world licking his sores, he dies the same night, and oh, the carriage that's afforded him as angels do take him up, and he's brought into the presence of God. An intimacy there with the father of faith, as it is said that he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Well, we come now to the end of this, where there's this final exchange between the rich man in hell and Abraham in heaven. It's an amazing thought that is presented to us that for the first time, this man, it seems, is sobered to what really matters. Doubtlessly, he had feasts where he invited his family over. Doubtlessly, he had celebrations where he bestowed upon his brothers and sisters and father and others who were with him all that the world could afford. Have you ever been to a privileged feast brought and you're dressed up, perhaps a wedding reception you go and all is provided to you free of charge as it were and you eat and you're happy and you go home and you say that was a good evening. Well doubtlessly there were such occasions that this man gave by way of entertaining and providing to his five brethren, as he mentions. And he would have rested, doubtlessly content, saying, look what good I've done to my brothers. And they would have returned home and thought, look what good my brother's done to me. These are the kinds of things that take place. Well, notice now, for the first time, it seems, this man sees what really matters. And so what is it he asks? Well, you have it so clearly before you. He says that he does not want them, verse 28, to come into this place of torment. How many people are there in this world who have said words the past 24 hours, you know, will party together in hell? How many people said in the past few hours with a smile on their face, with a joke in their gesture, see you in hell? And yet, if God spares them not, one day they will be in torments and they will see with what agony they are consumed. But notice, the man then makes request. He says to Abraham, listen, send him 
send them someone. He says, I wouldest, uh, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, notice verse 28, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. What's Abraham's response? Well, it's given to us, verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. That's a reference to the Scriptures of the Old Testament. So you remember when Christ is walking with two of disciples who don't yet fully persuade Him. He opens to their understanding all that is written of Him in the Law and in the Prophets and the Book of Psalms, which is the wisdom literature, the whole of the Old Testament. And here's Abraham saying, listen, they have the Old Testament. And what does the rich man say? He says, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Do you want to see how alive that thought is today? You can go into bookstores that bear the name Christian, nominally so, and bestsellers will be books like this, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Bestsellers will be things like this, 90 minutes. One who has died and seen and now come back. And Christians go about giving these books to people and say, see, you need to repent. What's astounding is that Christians whose faith are supposed to be in God's Word have actually adopted the viewpoint of the rich man in hell. I want my brethren converted, so what am I going to give to them? I'm going to give to them this radical expression of something, by the way, that cannot be verified, by the way, that has often been proven a hoax, and by the way, don't waste your time doing so, but if you were to read such books, you would find things in them that contradict the Scriptures. Now, all of that said, Abraham doesn't flinch. Notice what he says. Verse 31. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead. It's astounding that not only is this said, but this is proven, of course, when Christ raises a man by the name of Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus, having been dead four days comes forth, and men see, and many do flock. But do you know what unbelievers do? They sit in council in John's Gospel, and it's recorded that this is their approach. They sought how they might put Lazarus to death. They didn't say, look, it's amazing. We're now going to believe. They said, look, it testifies against us. We're going to try and squelch this work. Well, brethren, you'll notice Abraham's words. He says, verse 29, let them hear them. He says in verse 31, if they hear not Moses and the prophets. The emphasis that is before us is the Bible's emphasis that it is the Word of God which is the means God has appointed to convert Sinners. Now, you and I, doubtlessly coming here, understood that already. But if we can see this for what it is, each of us will leave here considering ourselves far richer than we did when we arrived. Because what we'll see here is that the Lord is placed in each of your hands. He has placed in each of your laps. He has placed in your households the greatest and most enriching gift that can ever be provided to you. Now for a moment, why are you cast down if you're cast down today? I imagine there are a lot of reasons that it could be. It could be, well, financially we're struggling to make ends meet. It could be, well, you know, my relationship with this person is is just broken. It could be, you know, I'm just overwhelmed. It could be this, that, and the other thing. Well, this is the point I want to make for you by the Scriptures. Every sorrow, every difficulty, every affliction, 
every problem that you face is given help by the Lord giving you His Word. You say, well, wait a second. You know, I just thought it was good to lead us unto faith in Christ and salvation. This is true. And were that all that the Word did, whatever else you would suffer in this life would be far inferior to what the Lord is giving you. Do you remember what we read in 2 Timothy 3? That the Word of God does all of these different things. That the man of God may be what? Perfect. Lacking nothing. So that in trials, we have a Word of God. In blessings, we have a Word of God. In relationship difficulties, we have the Divine Word. In emotional sorrows, we have the Divine Word. Do we lack assurance of faith? We have God's Word. Do we lack conviction over our sin and we wonder, O Lord, how cold-hearted I am? We have God's Word. God's Word is the all-sufficient treasury for all circumstances of this life. So that whatever our circumstances, if you have God's Word, you have an unending treasury that is for your soul's good. But, it must be, as is said here, that we hear them. In other words, if I could illustrate it this way, if your Bible remains in this position six days of the week, you're going to suffer spiritually. If your Bible sits on the side because your life is hectic and busy, or because it's full of sorrow and trouble, you're going to suffer. Just as if you had access to billions of dollars and never once withdrew a cent, you would benefit nothing by the inheritance that is yours. This is the point before us. It's not just that we have the Bible. It's that we're being told to take hold of the Bible. We're to hear the Scriptures. We're to give heed unto the Scriptures. And before we go further, isn't it astounding, brethren, this is true of each of us, isn't it astounding how every trial forces a wedge between us and the Bible? And we have some justification of why I can't get to the Bible. Well, my husband is being quite belligerent. Well, my children are overly demanding. My job is making me work extra hours. My health is infirm. My life is so busy with this event and that event and the other event. Here's the point. We have to step back and see that this is one of the fundamental temptations common to all people. Here's what the point is being tempted to be made. You have nothing peculiar in your life in essence, that others don't have in other circumstances. You say, wait, time out. You know, you don't suffer in the same way I do, and that's not what's being said. Everyone has their particular circumstances, but all of those particular circumstances, howsoever diverse, whether by age, whether by status, whether by phase of life and state of life, all of those peculiarities have the same use in our lives to say, well, I'll take up God's Word tomorrow. Well, I'll get to that later on. Here, the exhortation comes, let them hear them. In other words, if in the greatest concern, our soul's salvation, there must be the diligent hearing of God's Word, then in all inferior concerns, our soul's fixation must be upon the Word. Before we go yet further, here's the first thing to discern. God has given to you the means of your soul's everlasting blessing. Do you hear that for a moment? If you have the Bible, God in His sovereign kindness has given you the means for help in every trial, in every sorrow, in the worst and most difficult, the most extreme, the most austere, the most overwhelming, 
He's given you the very source of help. And so on with everything else. What this helps us to see then is though we're in a very sobering position, getting the sobriety of considering a man in hell, you have been given the means to heaven. You have been given the means of life everlasting, which shows us the great kindness of God to us, that whatever else He has taken from us, He's not means of everlasting life. Well, as we consider this exhortation, let them hear them. Consider three things. Firstly, man's twofold need. Secondly, man's mistake. And thirdly, God's provision. Man's twofold need, man's mistake, and God's provision. Now, there are many needs that man has, and yet we can often acknowledge that there are some more essentially and truly called needs than others. So, for instance, we might say something of, I really need this job. Well, you don't actually really need that job. What you may need is a means to provide food and drink and clothing. That job may be one of hundreds that could provide you that provision. And so Christ gets at this when in Matthew's Gospel He says, He identifies what you eat, what you drink, and what, in, what you put on. Those three things are fundamental to our life and thus our needs in this world. But brethren, remember this. Here the rich man had what was needed for food, what was needed for hydration, what was needed for clothing. He didn't just have it at the base level. He had it at the extravagant level. And yet, he was without his ultimate need. So what is this twofold need? Well, the first is true knowledge. And this is what the rich man is seeking on behalf of his five brethren. He says, I have five brethren, verse 28. Let Lazarus go and testify unto them. They stand ignorant of what they need. Their life is content. Doubtlessly, they would have been at the funeral of whatever way it was observed, and they would have been sad and cast down, and then they would have returned to their houses and over time perhaps been comforted. But here's what the rich man's saying. They stand ignorant of what their true need is. Their knowledge whatever sort it was, was lacking. They needed someone to come and testify to say, brothers of the rich man, you stand ignorant of your greatest and most pressing concern. Brethren, the world today needs that knowledge. Now, if we were not in, not just this church, but in church, if we were without the Scriptures, we would not have that knowledge in its fullness. You and I have been given the privilege of having, as it were, our sight corrected to perceive clearly what your need is. Mothers, when your children come to you, you ought on occasion to say to them explicitly, you know, mom and dad are striving to provide for your earthly needs. But remember this, mom and dad's greatest concern is to make you see your greatest need, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And they might say, well, why is it that we need the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, in order to get to that answer, we have to know something about man as fallen. Man, of course, is a wondrous creation. The wonder of how God made us merely physically if we just isolate that, is overwhelming at times. The way with a little triggering of our mental activities, our fingers can move and on one occasion grip weight that is extremely heavy and lift and move it. And on other occasions, hold something so delicately and move that with much finesse. It's an astounding thing the way the Lord has made us and how our systems work together. It's astounding when you consider the side of our soul as well and how our desires do express themselves 
physically, and how our bodies may, though they be well and healthy, yet even at times our souls, when troubled, all else is overcast. Man is a wondrous thing, but we ought to remember that man in his current estate is an enemy of God. Man has rebelled against God. And in order to, in some way, alleviate the shame of that rebellion, has increasingly distanced himself from the fundamental problem. Paul says it so clearly. Man has fallen is enmity with God. Not just an enemy, but the very abstracted state of enmity, opposed to God. He says it elsewhere, dead in their sins and trespasses. Men need this knowledge. But they also need the knowledge that howsoever bad that truth is, as Paul says it of himself in his writings, he was the chief of sinners and saved so that other sinners would see that God is a Savior of sinners. That knowledge is needed. And brethren, the good thing is this. The Bible cuts it all straight. The Bible tells us clearly where our miseries are, where our sins are, where our guilt is. But it also tells us clearly where our hope is to be found, where our salvation is to be discovered, where it is everlasting life is held forth. This true knowledge is the exclusive uh, teaching of Scripture. Now, we don't mean that you can't find it in other books, but if you can find it in another book, it's because that book is indebted to Scripture. So you can find, for instance, a helpful Christian book, and it might display to you the truth of sin, the truth of judgment, the truth of salvation, the truth of forgiveness. But if it's doing that, what is it doing? But it's opening the Bible to our understanding. The Bible is central to give us this true knowledge. Whatever the reality right now is over our nation's debate regarding paying for higher education and forgiveness of student loans and everything else, it's not for us in this time to address that. But we do acknowledge as much that when something is considered valuable by way of knowledge, men are willing to pay much for it. So you can look at people and they work and labor and they seek and save and then they pay, whether for their own or their children's or another by way of charitable service, for education. Now, here's something to consider. How much did you pay to gain access to the Bible? You might have bought the Bible you have. You might have purchased it for $30, dollars $200 $200 if you have some of those elite forms of the Scriptures in their leather and other fine accents. But brethren, you can find free copies of the Bible. You can find it for a dollar. If you asked a Christian and said, I can't afford the Bible, if that person is worthy of the name Christian, they would happily give you that and more copies of the Bible. Here's the point. The greatest knowledge that you can ever have has been freely afforded to you by God. Now, if you step back and think of that for a moment, you may have no higher education. You may not have even gone through high school yet. You may not have passed high school. You may have dropped out of high school. All of those things may be true. And yet, understand this for a moment. What is most absolutely necessary to know, God has given to you freely by giving to you the Bible. This is far superior to the highest education that you can gain in the best institution at the greatest expense and the longest enduring of instruction. This isn't to despise higher learning. It has its place. There are benefits to higher learning and great academics and higher institutions and so on. But here's the point. What is most desperately needed for your soul's good, God has given to you freely 
in giving to you the Scriptures. If you step back and consider that, and you survey the world right now, if you have the Bible, you have the richest treasury of God's gift of knowledge. Because it tells you about God, not only tells you about your sins, it not only tells you about judgment, but it tells you of the Savior. It tells you of God's grace. It tells you of heaven. It tells you of all of these things. And so our greatest need is met by God giving us the Scriptures. But notice that's one part of our need. The other part is here called repentance. Notice he says, I have five brethren, verse 28, and he says, lest they also come into this place of torment. And he says in verse 30, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. It's not just that the rich man wanted his brethren to have their doctrine orthodox. It's not just that he wanted his brethren to know there is a place of torment. His desire as expressed here is that they would be brought away from this place of torment by being gifted repentance. And yet the man doesn't understand the way of repentance. He saw it was necessary, but he didn't discern how it was given. He thought that it would be worked, as it were, overwhelmed by the extravagant display of a miracle. And sometimes in our own difficulties, we're guilty of asking similar things. Oh God, if You would be merciful to me, would You make the door to move on its own? Oh God, if You would be merciful to me, would You cause a cloud to pass by in the shape, as it were, of a dove. These fanciful things that we ask. If You would be merciful to me, cause the phone to ring in five seconds. We're yearning for some display of something wondrous. Something overwhelming. And if You would show that to me, then I will believe. Then I will repent. But notice, Abraham's response is, no, it doesn't consist in the sensational. It consists in the scriptural. The Bible is what they need. And if we step back, we can see something even more interesting. Of course, by way of historical context, it makes perfect sense. But Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. When we read from 2 Timothy 3, and Paul writes to Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out of God, it's inspired of God. What were the Scriptures that Paul had reference to? But the Old Testament. Because when Timothy was an infant, a child, and taught by his mother and grandmother, he had the Scriptures which are able to make him wise into salvation, which is by faith in Christ Jesus. What were the Scriptures when Timothy was an infant? It was Moses and the prophets. Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament. The Old Testament on its own is sufficient to tell us of the way of salvation. But notice, here Abraham says, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. You see a link there? The idea of hearing has to do with being persuaded. The idea of hearing has to do with embracing. Yes, what is said is true. Yes, what is said is right. Yes, what is said will now govern me. This is what's expressed when the rich man seeks his brethren to repent. And so it is, the other aspect of our need is that our souls would be gripped by and brought to embrace the truth of the Scriptures which will evidence itself in our repentance. So across the globe right now, there are multitudes who either have sat in church, are sitting in church, or will sit in church and hear the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And yet, though they hear them with their ears, 
They will not be persuaded in their souls that their lives should change in accordance to what the Word holds forth. And this is what Abraham's acknowledging. If they won't be persuaded by the Scriptures, it doesn't matter what else goes forth. None of that will persuade them. And so you see this today, right? Well, you know, yep, we preach the Bible. This is what we need. We need a converted rock star to come in and give a special testimony. We need a converted athlete to come in and testify of their life. We need someone who's rich and famous to come in and then it will be taking place. We need the best light show. We need the best music. We need the best facilities. We need the best comforts provided. And if we get those things, then people will come and embrace the truth. And the Scriptures say, no way is that even close to the truth. I imagine if God gave us license to do this, and we went to a minister and said, listen, God's given me the ability to raise the dead. Would you let others know to meet me at this cemetery on this day, and they will see me raise the dead? Do you think that will get people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? How many people would say, absolutely, you know, get on the phone, and they do the text blast. They do the social media. Meet me here and see the dead raised and then believe in God. Now, we have nothing to speak against God's use of miracles, but we do mean to see quite clearly that the miracle is in no way equal to or certainly is it even beyond the power of the Scriptures. The Scriptures themselves are sufficient unto salvation. The Scriptures themselves are sufficient to give repentance. And so, brethren, it may be that you languish in your soul at present and you say, I just don't get it. I've got the Bible. I don't have what else I need. No, no. You have what you need. It is your call then to go to God first with gratitude to say, Lord, whatever else you've kept from me, whatever else you've taken from me, You haven't taken from me the Bible. And in giving to me the Bible, now all of a sudden petitions in the Bible make sense. Open my eyes that I may see. Open my ears that I may hear. Quicken my heart. Enlarge my heart. You see, when the soul gets the point, it's not that we say, yep, I've got the Bible, but I need something else. It's that we say we have the Bible and now, God, we look to You to give grace that You would save me by the Bible. It leads us to wait upon God in the Bible. It leads us to petition God to make powerful the Bible to our souls. This is what we need. True knowledge and God's grace by and with the Scriptures. Maybe you're a Christian and yet you're in the midst of several struggles or one particular struggle. What do you need? You need the Bible, and you need God to enliven you thereby. You need the Scriptures, and you need the Holy Spirit to minister. And brethren, it's tremendously encouraging that the Lord Himself says that the Father is one who happily gives the Spirit to all that ask. So man's twofold need. Well, secondly, man's mistake. This is quite clear, and we need not labor this more than what's been said, apart from just identifying this particularly. Man's mistake is that he thinks he needs the sensational. He needs something that's overwhelmingly moving, right? And so we need some sort of activity that is miraculous, that then will me or others to embrace the truth. Well, in one sense, there's truth. We do need something miraculous. But it's not the sensational outside of us. It's the supernatural within us. It's the Spirit of God taking from us the heart of stone and giving to us the heart that's alive. It's that which is needed. 
It's not that we need some display of something supernatural outside of us. It's that we need the Scriptures, which are supernaturally given to us, to be supernaturally received as God's grace works within us. Because when it is we desire those other things, it's that we're actually subtly, even though we would not say it, that we're despising the truth that God has given. So for instance, if you have a loved one that's lost, though you have the certainty of heaven for yourself, doubtlessly you share in something of Lazarus or the rich man's desire. I have a mother. I have a father. I have a brother. I have a son. I have a daughter. I have a cousin. I have a neighbor. I have a spouse. I have somebody. And I pray, oh God, save them. Do you know what you're brother, sister, mother, friend, whoever it is needs, they need first and foremost God's Word. And with that Word, they need the Spirit of God to exercise grace. But brethren, we can back up and we can just confine ourselves to our own souls. What is it my soul, even as a believer, needs? When I'm downcast, when I am overwhelmed, when I'm cast out, when I'm cast down, when I'm uh, flurried about with all sorts of activity, I can't get my thoughts contained. What is it I need? I need the same thing. I need God's Word and God's grace. And so the psalmist is regularly making this point. The subtle problem for me, as well as doubtlessly for you, is one of two things. We want God's blessing by dividing His way. And so we have His Word and we say, I don't have time for that. We close it, put it by, and say, I need your blessing. But brethren, that's not how God's blessing comes. God's blessing comes with an open Bible flowing over our souls. But it's also the opposite can be a problem where we think, well, I'm just going to read and read and read and multiply and multiply and multiply instances of reading And then what we subtly do is set aside the need for the Spirit. And this is a mistake in Christians. We must come to God and say, bless your name that your word is before me. And though I'm cast down, I'll wait upon the Lord. I challenge you. Oh, I earnestly call each one here to read through Psalm 119 and mark these two thoughts the diligent searching of the Scriptures and the earnest prayer for guidance. And your marking of Psalm 119 will almost be highlighting the whole thing. Because it's regularly study, 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 read, read, meditate, meditate. And then likewise, bless, bless, quicken, open, enliven, direct. These things go together such that as Christians we will not grow unless both of these are pulled together. The world divorces it most openly. But brethren, you and I, well, in our practice, we continue to make this mistake when we separate God's Spirit from His Word. We need both together, for that's the order of blessing. Do you remember how we read, or sang earlier, sorry, read in Psalm 119, Verse 1, listen to this. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with the whole heart. What is their life governed by? It's not governed by feeling. It's governed by the Word. Now, Christian, what has God given you? He's given you the Bible. He's given you the means unto blessing. And so then we come to Him and say, thank you for this. Join with it your Spirit's blessing unto life. And this leads us then to God's provision. God has provided us the Scriptures. Let them hear them. Them first refers to the brethren of the rich man. The second instance of them refers to the Scriptures. Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers 
Hear Moses and the prophets. Brethren, what if God withheld the Bible from you? You would, with most certain, guaranteed reality, experience the rich man's torment. But what has God given to you? God has given to you the means of life everlasting. Tell me what God has taken from you for a moment. Has God taken from you comfort? Has He taken from you sleep? Has He taken from you family? Has He taken from you wealth? Has He taken from you outward things? Has He taken from you relationships? All of those things may be true to degrees I can't comprehend. But let me ask you, has He taken from you His Word? And if your answer to that is no, He's not taken from me His Word, then you need to come to terms with this. He has placed in your life the best treasury that any could ever possess. Whatever else He's taken from you, and brethren, whatever else He will take from you, if He has maintained His Word to you, He's given to you the richest, the best, the most wealthy privilege afforded to men in this world. Sometimes we get amazed by the wealth of pagan kings. If you think about Nebuchadnezzar as he stood out at his great empire, I imagine that something of us would have liked to have seen it. What was his kingdom like that he could look out and say, this great kingdom have I done, have I made, and so on. We think of various wealthy manners and places of rich living. We can drive through certain neighborhoods in St. Louis and we're astounded not just at the size of the house, but likewise the size of the land on which the house sits, which costs multi-millions of dollars. We're amazed by that, that we're sometimes like the disciples and say, look what great buildings these are. We get overwhelmed by that. Brethren, if you had eyes to see it, in the 66 books of the Bible that may be sitting on your lap right now, is the richest blessing that any has ever possessed in the history of the world. You are far richer than the richest unbeliever in this world if you have the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures hold forth forgiveness. They hold forth reconciliation. They hold forth God's covenant. They hold forth life everlasting. They display the beauty of Christ. They hold forth communion with God in Christ. They convey to us a foretaste of the rich feast of heaven. And they are our guarantee that what God has promised, He will bring to pass. You have it. You have it in spite of of what else you don't have. You have it in spite of what troubles you do have. You have the richest treasury. And so let me ask you in the most tender, searching way I can, what use are you making of this rich treasury? Is it being used of you in that way? Is it overwhelming your soul with gladness? Is it leading you and your spouse, if married, your children, if a parent? Is it being used in that way? Is it being held forth in that way when your children come to you or your spouse is downcast or you yourself are overwhelmed because of what you don't have? Does it come into your ear as if a whisper of God and say, oh, but remember what you do have. You have the inheritance of Christ Jesus held forth to you. There's children come and they say, well, you know, down the street, he got this or that for his birthday. We don't have that. Are you able to say, yes, I know that's difficult. I know it's a sorrow. We can remember when we were young and troubled by similar things. But are you able to comfort that child and say, I know you can't see it fully yet now, but I want you to see what God holds forth to you. He holds forth to you everlasting life. Brethren, this provision God has given to each of us in giving us the Scriptures, are they being used 
in that way. If you were hungry and you have $1,000 in your bank account, I imagine you wouldn't think too much about going to get a $5 sandwich and eat to your soul's contentment. Say, well, I'm thankful for that. Now, what troubles do you have that are far more important than hunger? Your relationships, your family, your soul, your concerns, your trials, your troubles, all of these things. There is a limitless provision of help held forth to you in the Scriptures. Let them hear them. The Scriptures are sufficient to make us everlastingly blessed as we remember their teaching and embrace them by faith. Let me close with three things. Firstly, an insight to all who have the Bible. Secondly, an exhortation that would follow upon it. And thirdly and lastly, encouragement for all who use the Bible. First, an insight. It would be a useful exercise were you to go home, whether today or tomorrow or later this week, get a sheet of paper out and write down the following things. What are the troubles in my life that I have? Write them down. List them. Go over them. Make sure they're as full and complete as possible. What are the difficulties I face if married in my marriage, marriage, if single in my singleness, if a child with my parents, with my siblings, if an employee with my employer, if my health is poor in my health, whatever it is, list it down. And then this is what I want you to ask. Does God's Word provide hope against all of them? And as you consider that, you'll find this out. The answer is a resounding yes. There is an answer for every affliction. It may not be what the world wants, but there is an answer that is overwhelmingly sufficient to supply you with joy in the Holy Ghost, even in the midst of the worst trials. If this is true, God has given to you this great privilege in giving to you His Bible. This leads us then to the exhortation. We must read the Bible. We must hear the Bible. But not just in that way that we sometimes do. It's my daily reading, check. It's Monday, check. It's Tuesday, check. It's Wednesday, check. And then we get through the week and the next week, check, 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 check. And oh, it's family time, check. And it's private time, check. And it's public time, check. All of those things are needed and good. But it falls short if it's not that we are coming under His Word and saying, Lord, give me ears to hear it. Do you remember that Christ said this to His disciples? He said, and think of this expression, My words sink deeply into your ears. There's an activity of our souls that needs to come under and focus upon and embrace the truth way which can only come as the Spirit of God provides. And so, as we read diligently, daily, regularly, we're diligently, daily, regularly praying for what? That God would open our eyes. That God would unstop our ears. That God would give us a heart to embrace the truth. And finally, here is encouragement For each of you, you may look at your life and say, listen, I wish I were close to daily. I wish I were close to every other day. I wish I were close to once a week. I don't know where you are. I hope that you, by God's grace, are making strides and steps. But here's an encouragement for you for a moment. I know where you're not. You're not in hell. I know where you're not. You're not in torments. I know where you're not. You're not with the rich man suffering immeasurably and everlastingly and continually that which sinners justly deserve. So I know that you're not there. And so then look at Abraham's exhortation. He says, let them hear them. You are alive. You have the Bible. You have the inheritance of God's Word 
provided you. And you may need to go to God and say, Lord, for too long, for these reasons, I've said, I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll get to it later. I'll read it a little. I'll go through the spurt and I'll pick it up and so on. You may need to confess that. But you may go to God and say first, thank you for your word. Bless that I would be brought to hear it. Bless that I would be brought to embrace it. Bless that I would be brought to persuade it. Because in them, we seek life. And as Christ says, these are they, the Scriptures are they, which testify of what? No, no, that testify of whom? They testify of Christ. The Word of God testifies of Jesus Christ. And so as we read, we say, thank you, though I've sinned with it, though I've sinned in my neglect in it, though I've given myself with busyness and other things, or been overwhelmed in circumstances, yet you've not taken from me your word. Bless them that by God's grace, not only would I take up your word individually, in my family, and in the public worship of God, but that I, by your grace, would embrace it with persuasion with that persuasion that only God can give. Praise God, for He has granted to the Gentiles repentance. Oh, may we come and pray, God, grant that I, my children, my friends, my family, my co-workers, grant that they and I and we would repent and be persuaded that we would embrace the truth that this treasury held forth would be a treasury of blessing embraced. Brethren, this is your encouragement. God has not taken you from the Bible, nor His Bible from you. And you can look back within grief. You can look to God in mercy, who has held forth His Word still, and He says, take it, and read it, and live it, and embrace it. For in these words, there is life, In these words, there is Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?